Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. In this episode, Liam Budge joins me for a conversation. Now, Liam is a very skilled musician with an interesting story to tell about his adventures, which span to New York and back again. He is also very creative in the visual sense, and by that I mean photography and video production, which we get into as well. His love for creativity across music and the visual media comes from his desire and passion to connect with people. For him, creativity is all about communication and conversation. And that leads us to a third part, which we also discuss in the podcast, and that is his latest work when it comes to the conversation around non-monogamy. If your interests lie in a music career or that in video production, then this most certainly is the podcast for you. However, if you also want to understand how a creative career develops somewhat by organics and somewhat by design, then we discuss exactly the kind of branching Liam has undertaken that has led him to all the things that he is doing right now. I'd like to thank Super Curious for being the sponsors of this podcast and the entire series from the very beginning. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Liam Budge on Behind the Bio. Hey, Leo, how are you going? I'm good. How are you? Very good. <laughs> you just said, oh, what are we talking about? And there is so much. There is so much. If anybody were asking about you to me, the first thing that I think of is, is a gifted musician, right? And I'm not trying to soak up. <laughs> but, you know, I, I met you at uh, in your school of music. You were performing there. I think I was having lunch uh, with a colleague. I heard you performing in a band. This probably would have been just when you finished finishing a degree. Yeah. Uh, I turned around at the end and I said, hi, my name's Ashley. I, I just produce music on the side at home, you know, in my bedroom. Yeah. Uh, would you mind doing some vocals? You're like, yeah, sure, no worries. I uh, got your number. That's how we connected, right? I, this mm. was such a long time ago. I don't even remember when that was. I mean, you, did, you have a great memory just to even remember that part. That's, yeah. a, that's amazing. Yeah, like we had no beard and much shorter hair and stuff. <laughs> Um, but I'm pretty sure that was a bit of a performance you're doing like very much towards the end of your degree. Mm. Anyway, we kept in touch all the way as, as you kind of saw through different things. And it's only, it's going to sound weird, but it's only many, many years later after you've gone to New York and you came back that I actually kind of realized the magnitude of the things that you were doing. Maybe because some of the people that you were casually dropping into a conversation yeah I, I knew of maybe because of the music that i admire or whatever else and i'm like holy crap that is a whole nother level maybe the places you were also playing in um in new york which i've heard of only legends play in and i'm like think this is really something else right and anyway point being is that i, I kind of went you really are a musician and not uh, in a pop kind of broader sense but most certainly mm. in a very specific niche of, of jazz if i can call it that but it's it's more modern jazz, really, right? Yeah, it's kind of a, a whole mixture of different mixture, yeah. different genres. So, you know, at first I'm kind of great. It'd be awesome to speak to you about that journey, right? But then, of course, that's maybe one side of it at best. Mm. And really there's all these other facets to you, including some amazing work that you're doing at the moment. And I don't know whether it's worth maybe talking about the music side of things because I think the listeners will most certainly find that interesting and how – your passion for music and everything else has taken you to mm. the other side of the earth and back again. You ended up being, by the way, in New York for four years? Six yeah, six years. Six years, yeah. right? So, Almost yeah, a long, long time. Yeah. So it might be worth just kind of 
talking about that. But but then also, if we've got the time and everything else, maybe talking about how other streams kind of started developing at that same time, or mm. chapters or branches in your life, some of which you're leaning into right now. And whether that is the creative stuff like the photography and the video stuff and then mm. the collective, mm. uh, but rather some other social causes, if I can call them that as well, that we could we could lean into. Yeah. So. What, what do you think? Is that too much for an hour? All of the above. Let's <laughs> let's let's see how much ground we can we can conquer. Well, okay, tell me. After the time that I saw you, how long was it before you ended up going to New York with your music, and why why was the decision taken? Yeah, so I initially went to New York in 2012 uh, after I'd finished my uh, university studies, and I went there initially for three months just to kind of test the waters, check out the scene, see what was happening musically, and also to see whether it would be kind of appropriate almost for me to kind of move over there and if I'd have a chance to even get a gig or even have a chance to play with all these amazing musicians. Because being from a small-ish place like Canberra with the, the, a relatively small music scene, kind of the idea of going to New York was like this magical fantasy land of all my heroes had, had come from, you know, that scene and, and it was it was a little daunting at first. So initially I, I kind of jumped in to, to I guess, put my toe in the water just to see what it felt like to have some jam sessions. And in those three months, it was actually the, the different doors kind of really opened up. I'd had a few connections from musicians who I'd met in Australia who were living in New York and they'd be the ones who'd say, come on, get up at the jam session. And I remember the first time I was in New York, I got up at, at Jazz at the Lincoln Center. Mm. And uh, I remember that first band in the band was John Batiste, mm-hmm. who is now, of course, you know, uh, as famous as can be, yeah. winning the Grammys and all this kind of stuff. He's a session musician or oh, the in-house musician as well for um, which late night show is it? Uh, Colbert. Yeah. The, yeah yes. Yeah. So he was for for a long time. Now he's not. He's kind of gone on to to win the album of the year for Grammys and have this amazing new Netflix uh, documentary. But he was the first piano player I played with in New York, which was right. which was absolutely crazy. And and uh, and just I remember being on that stage. And just in, in a jam session environment and just thinking, this is really incredible. Like the feeling that I felt as a musician and they were really nice to me and kind to me and said, oh, you know, you've got some stuff like, you know, you should hang out a, a little bit more and, and all that kind of thing. So it was the first test of, of whether I could hang musically speaking in that environment. And it just really, it, it felt, uh, it felt beautiful. So I came back. To Australia, I also got engaged uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, my my wife Abby uh, came and joined for the last month of the trip, and I proposed in that. And then we decided to to kind of move back to New York uh, for an initial year to to see whether we could make it work in terms of employment as well. Like actually, because yeah. because it was one thing to get up on stage and do some jam sessions, but to actually New kind of be, it's not cheap. It's not cheap, and mm. to exist uh, as a musician, as a creative in New York is a whole nother thing entirely. So uh, we went back, and then, uh, yeah, I was lucky to, to make the right connections. I ended up doing a lot of uh, corporate work, so I did some some wedding work and, and that type of thing, which was I kind of became busy enough for that to make it a, a very viable stream of income. Yeah. Um, and then I was able to do all my creative stuff around it and, and that was the moment I think we we kind of fully committed to the New York thing. And then from that stage, after the initial kind of visa that we had, which was like a bridging visa, I applied for my artist visa, which I, I then got two of. Um, so that was for three years at yeah. the time. Um, so the thinking behind all of this, though, what was going through your mind? I mean, it's one thing to give it a go 
being surrounded by the environment of musicians that New York offered. Mm. And of course, the corporate work that we were doing, but I'm sure you weren't thinking, oh, I'd like to be in this corporate work forever. That's why I became a musician. Yes. So what was your, I don't know if I want to call it a career or long-term goal as such, but was the idea to uh, create an album, become uh, essentially a musician who can continue to deliver work that's commercially mm. successful? Was it more to do with live musician and that was it to work in music in a different sphere like what was your not end game because i know it's forever evolving but what mm. were you hoping to kind of achieve during that time there i think in my mind i had this this kind of dream of like stardom like jazz stardom you know i'd been in yeah. the university environment where kind of like maybe a, a little bit of a big fish in a small pond type thing and going over there i thought oh i'm gonna re- i'm gonna record an album and then i'm gonna get picked up by a major label and this yep. was still the time when People were buying albums. It was pre-streaming and, and all that kind of, and that kind of big shift that happened in the music industry within the last, you know, um, I guess decade or so. But but uh, it was it was really the kind of back end of that. So I had this very traditional I, route to success. I thought I'm going to record an album, get a record deal, uh, tour all around Europe, and do the whole thing, and you know, see my name in lights. And of course, the reality of that is is very different. Uh, again, being in a in a bigger uh, kind of musician community, and also being uh, kind of quite new to jazz. You know, in my mind, I'd thought, oh, you know, I've, I've got some chops. I can I can sing. But when you're when you're getting on stage with musicians who've played jazz from you know from five years old, they're surrounded by jazz constantly in an American context. Like you're you're really met with people who've lived nothing else but jazz. Mm. And so it's a it's kind of I would say it's almost kind of a. I had to find where my my own artistic voice was within yeah. that community. Uh, so it was it was a little bit of a shift. I kind of moved away from this kind of romanticized, idyllic, you know, to then just wanting to to create great music with great musicians. Yeah. Um, so my shift kind of moved to that. So I, I you know, I was I was uh, I recorded music whilst I was over there. I was involved in some great bands. Um, and playing with incredible musicians. And to me, that became the definition of success mm. for me, was who I was surrounded by, um, getting challenged musically, getting challenged artistically. And that became my new barometer for, you know, am I achieving? You know, am I accomplishing what I'm here to do? Like, am I playing with the best musicians and, you know, putting on the best shows that I can, uh, writing the best music that I can? Mm. Um, yeah, so it really became about that. So do you think the other people that you hang around with, and I mean, you mentioned Baptiste, there's also um, the gentleman who now does a lot of scoring for Netflix movie, these, who actually started off in jazz. What's his name? Oh, Chris Bowers. Chris Bowers, yeah. yeah. It, interestingly, like, I mean, I picked up his album, that, I think it's called Heroes and Misfits. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I picked up that album uh, separately without knowing anything about your connection. And mm. it's like, it's, it's a great album. There's a couple of songs on that which I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, again, I would loosely call it modern jazz, but that's probably completely incorrect. But for, for my take on it, it's it's most certainly jazz, but it has this almost electronic feel to it in parts, you know. Anyway, mm. um, but I didn't realize the connection and then you kind of just name dropped it. And I'm like, now I see his name everywhere in terms of scoring and, and classical yeah. music scoring and what have you. Yeah. So my question is, Baptiste and, and him as well, and I'm sure there's been many others. Mm. Notice how they ended up in kind of, I guess, very successful positions, you mm. know, whether it's individual albums, whether they've gone into the music industry and end up scoring and all the rest of it. Mm. Do you think they had an idea of that's where they were going to end up or is it somewhat organic? 
Yeah, well, both John Batiste and Chris Bowers, they they went through the Juilliard School. So they were on a route of the, a very clear trajectory. Oh, okay. And they were so talented. And Chris played in my band and, and we recorded together, like my original music. And so, and him and I are, are very close um, still. But he has, his career has kind of skyrocketed and John's have. And I think- What's very clear within an American context is that the best people will always rise to the top. And both of them are very lovely people as well. And they're both very driven. So they're, they have that incredible combination of being incredibly commercially viable, mm. nice people, very hardworking, incredible musicians. And so the doors are just understandably and justifiably kind of really opened up for them. Um, so I think they are on a, a very clear trajectory, but they've been establishing these networks their whole lives as well sure. through jazz camps and through composer camps. And, and of course, Juilliard is this unbelievable melting pot of, of not just musicians, but dancers and actors mm. and all that kind of stuff. And all of those connections are something that they've drawn on to kind of catapult them okay. to, to stardom as well. Um, but yeah, they're incredible examples of, of, uh, yeah, of incredible artists. I mean, the reason that I'm asking this question is a lot of us, when we think of musicians, uh, mm. and probably because, you know, I would like to think that everybody likes music in some way or another, from a basic understanding right through to very complex understandings mm. of music, we all have a song that we enjoy, so we all get it. Yeah. But when we think of people who become musicians, most of us have a pretty basic understanding of where that could take them, which is why most parents mm. tend to say to their kids, listen, would you mind having a professional thing on the yeah. side? Um, also because it's very tough in that industry. What I was trying to kind of ascertain is, and, and you kind of explain that, is yes, you could go down the traditional idea of is I love music, I'll just try to be the best I can, and through that opportunities may open, I may get signed, I may be lucky, you know, blah, mm. versus perhaps a path that's a bit more chosen by the education that you get, the people that you hang out with, and perhaps the vision that you might have for things. Mm. <sighs> Yeah, I, I don't know whether it's a very different thing in America versus versus here. Mm. Um, well, it's, it, it is a fascinating thing because it, it's also about the, the the kind of forks in the road that you meet and what yeah. what you decide to do. So when I was in New York in the towards the end of the first year that I was in New York, um, I released. Actually, Chris was on the session. I, re, I I recorded a few of my songs. I put them online, and uh, one of the teachers from Juilliard was a producer. Uh, a music producer was working with another producer who was producing the band American Authors. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. They had this mm -hmm. they had this kind of hit song, Best Day of My Life. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a number one smash hit. And anyway, they were they were auditioning for a new band that was going to be this kind of um, conceived straight for radio. They needed a front man. And uh, they basically kind of wined and dined me. They got me to come up uh, upstate New York. Um, they got a car to pick me up. You know, they took me to this crazy recording studio and they're like, oh, this, you know, we've got, we've got this amazing tours booked and all this kind of stuff. And then it came time and I was, I was young. I was very impressionable, but I had enough sense about me to, when they started offering me contracts and these types of things, which were going to be with, with label, um, kind of adjacent to different labels was I, I had to look through all the fine print and everything. And I decided to, in the end, turn down the deal because what they were asking and what stipulated in the contract was that if any 
music that I wrote within the five years that I was signing the contract for, they would have complete rights. Mm -hmm. So not just the band that I was performing in and the songs that I was singing, but everything that I wrote, any artistic output that I had. And for me, I wasn't comfortable. And it was also, they were talking about huge touring schedules, like supporting big bands around America and Europe and all that kind of stuff. Um, like supporting the American authors around, you know, a hundred dates around America. But this isn't like glamorous, like jet setting touring. Mm-hmm. This is like brutal in a bus support band type of thing. And, you know, I just, uh, just proposed to Abby, we're engaged and it would have had such a huge impact on my life. But that was an inflection point where I could have gone, you know, this is the bright, shiny thing. You know, I'll be on a label. I'll, they were, you know, they were promising me all these crazy things, whether they would have come true or not, who knows? Um, maybe potentially not, but it's, it was one of those things where I could have said yes to that. Um, and I had this huge, it was right at the end of our first year in New York and we came back to Australia. I remember it very vividly. We came back to Australia, um, uh, for Christmas and to get my next visa. And I had these big discussions with Abby and I remember being at the airport, getting advice from friends in New York who had looked through the, through the, uh, the contract and they were, and I was saying, this seems like a crazy contract to sign. Like I'm signing my life away for five years. And the general consensus was, it's hard because you don't know where it's going to lead. I was going to say opportunities that opens, yeah. It could be incredible. Um, but in the end, uh, I decided to not sign the contract and I they were pretty unhappy at the time because, you know, they put all their eggs in my basket um, and they were, you know, they were writing all the songs, all the songwriters were writing songs for my voice and all that kind of thing. But it was, it was just the appropriate thing at the time, the right decision for me. Yeah. But I, I look back at that and I think, you know, I could have had a one-hit wonder. I could have been in a band that ends up being massive. Um, and this was when I was, I don't know, 20, 22, 23. Um, so this was 10 years, over 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and I wonder, you know, how my life would have turned out if I'd have sure. said yes to that. Um, but, you know, th- this is how these but, things But we happen. make the choices that we make for a particular reason. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, um, I think I might have mentioned this in the podcast before, but I, a long time ago, had an opportunity to be – buying in for a few grand, which seemed like a lot at the time, but probably now it's laughable in comparison, uh, to be part of a company that does a lot of um, major events and festivals, right? Mm. And I said no, and I wasn't quite sure why. I I think it was something to do with the fact that I didn't feel in control of the situation. Mm. But there was something about the relationship that I felt uneasy about because even though on paper and the opportunity that it could have given might have been awesome. There was something about the decision that just didn't feel right. And somehow I made the decision for whatever was the best reasoning at the time and Mm. you stick by it. And same with you, you know, maybe, maybe you did consider the risk too great and maybe, well, not maybe you did. Um, And so I think we just need to back ourselves on those kind of things. But what I'm hearing is though, that there are, many ways to success and i know that means different things to different yeah. people but let's just talk about the very generic kind of idea of albums and and uh fame i think um what you're saying is that you know consciously sometimes you make decisions not to go that those directions even though it might seem very shiny um mm. and that's and that's fair enough but it's kind of awesome that you know your trip to the states and everything else at least gave you those Oh, absolutely. And there were so many situations and and different connections that were made, you know, even just turning down that. Like I wouldn't have had all the opportunities that I had in New York after that if I'd have said yes to that, you know. Like so all the musicians that I met after that fact and after I'd said no to that particular opportunity – 
you know, it was it was incredible. Some of the doors that opened, and mm. and this is the thing: if you you know, one one door closes, another door opens. That that old adage, but it's it really is true. And especially in a, in a city like New York, often there's a million doors that are kind of opening all at once, <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh, which you know, which one am I going to go through? Yeah. And it's it's you know, sometimes you just have to trust your gut. Yeah. And uh, in the end, uh, I'm really thankful that I made that decision. And mm. I, I do think it was right, but it was a hard one at the time, and especially being young, um, when you don't have the experience within the industry and when something that has really taps into where you've stereotypically viewed it as success, yeah. you've viewed like being on tour as successful. Whereas I, I've got so many friends now who do world tours with all these artists and some of the, the, the touring artists themselves, but they, it's a stressful, it's a very tricky life, yeah. you know, apart from all the, the flashiness of it all. Like it's a real, it's really hard to be touring around the world. It's hard to, to have a family. Sure. It's, it's, and as many thousands of people as you're performing in front of each night, it does, it does have its downsides as well. Yeah. 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 And it's, and it, maybe that's when maturity comes into all of that, that you can foresee the shine coming off. At yes. some point and kind yeah. of realizing, actually, if you don't mind me saying this, one of the reasons I'm not even a, a 1% of the musician you are, but let's just say that I was, I've always thought I actually wouldn't want to be a musician full time or work mm. in music full time. Mm. Because for me, it's such a fun, pleasurable thing to do. And half the pleasure is that mm. I can switch in and out of it as I give or want to. And if I was in it full time and it became a job, I'm worried that I end up, would I would end up hating it. Mm -hmm. And and in some way that's protected me from ever going into music full time. And even though I do a lot of music, as you know, quite seriously, and it's kind of my biggest hobby apart from some professional stuff I do. Mm. Yeah, there, there's a conscious thing of me saying if I ever did this full time, even with my DJing, there was there was a moment where I got asked to move to Sydney to start doing regular gigs in, in a massive nightclub, and I consciously said no, that's enough because there will come a day that I won't want to do this. I'm not yeah. going to be wanting to be up at 2 a.m. in front mm. of massive crowds of flashing lights. I want to be in bed after my milk and cookies, <laughs> right? And gardening the next day, as, as even yeah. I laughed at. Some maturity kicks in and you kind of think, one day this isn't going to be shiny if, if I keep on going this way. Yeah, and there's a real power in keeping a passion a passion. <laughs> because even in New York, you know, the, the hustle does take over because you've got to live, rent's expensive, all that kind of stuff. And, and there was a stage when I was doing... I was doing 30 gigs a month. Like I was literally playing every night of the month. And it was just like, it was, and, and a lot of them, maybe there might be three or four artistic gigs within that. But a lot of it was like weddings or I had a, a regular gig at a steakhouse in Midtown, which was right opposite Radio City. And it was the craziest gig because all the celebrities would come to. But there was nights where Jamie Foxx would come and sit in and play with the band. You know, like <laughs> I, we'd be doing like, we'd, it was all cover songs. And we there was one night where, you know, we were, we were playing a Timberland song, like a Timberland Ashanti tune, I think. Mm -hmm. And then we realized one of the wait waiters came over to us and goes, do you know who's here? And we're like, who? I was like, Timberland, this is <laughs> right there. And we're thinking, oh, God, you know, I uh, hope they'll like the cover. But it was, but it's like, but those, even though there are these amazing experiences happening, like that is a grind. Like yeah. if you're doing that every night of the month, you know, it does become, you, you know, the, something uh, of the shininess gets taken away. Mm. Um, and so even there's an argument, and I talk about this when I was teaching at ANU with, with my students, is that, uh, you know, studying music is a great gift. There's an, a beautiful ability to, to make connections uh, with other musicians and, and really foster your, your love for music. But you have to be mindful that 
overanalysis can actually take some of the joy away. Some mm. of the best songwriters are songwriters who have no idea about what the chords are, have no idea about, you know, what technically makes a good melody, but they do it instinctually and with their gut. And this makes them beautiful songwriters. And that doesn't make that songwriter any any less incredible than someone who's gone through Juilliard or gone yeah. through a, a conservatorium model where they have all this information. And in, in a lot of ways, the happiest musicians that I know are ones who aren't don't have the baggage of that kind <laughs> of really over-analytical, because that is baggage. Like, I can't go to a gig and not analyze it. I just can't turn off. Like I'll be at a gig and I'll be seeing some amazing musician and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I saw that chord change. Like, oh yeah, they're moving to like the four minor there. That's beautiful. I love that. And and it's very hard. <laughs> and this is why I really love, um, you know, doing my video and photo work is that I, I didn't train technically in that uh, artistic medium. So it actually releases a lot of the baggage from me. And I've, I've taught myself a lot of things. And I, I study cinematography and I, I'm, I'm very passionate about learning how other people do it and other creatives do it. But because I haven't gone through that framework of a university model, you know, I don't have that baggage of like, sometimes I'll just, I, I, if, if I write a song and I perform it, I'm thinking about what do people think? You know, is this song overthought? Like, did I just make this too complicated just for the sake of it? But when I take a photo or, or, or make a video or something- Does I, it I, look good? Yeah, I just put it up and I go, I'm really proud of that. To me, it feels good. Yeah. I'm happy with this. I'm gonna put it out. And I don't actually have that. And it's a real freedom in that. And it's a, there's a, a real beauty in that. And I, and, and I think that's why I gravitate towards expressing myself artistically in a lot of different mediums. And that's also why like dance is something I know absolutely nothing about. Mm. And I collaborate uh, since being back in uh, Canberra, I've collaborated a lot with dancers, like writing music for dance and also filming dances with the Australian dance party, Alison Plevy and, and that whole crew. And I've loved doing that work, but being around dancers, I can feel myself getting drawn into like, oh, I'd love to know more about the technical side of dancing. But then I think, actually, I just love knowing yep. nothing. I actually just want, I want to be able to go see a Sydney dance company show and just go, I have no idea what's going on. Like all the dancers in the room might think this is rubbish, but I think it's amazing and mm. I don't care. Yeah. I just like have no idea. And it's 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 just a real beautiful thing to have that sense of like willful ignorance yeah. when it comes to appreciating art. Nice. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's a... Yeah. Well, actually, this is a perfect segue to talk about your other creative ventures. But before we do, uh, just humor me here and ask me this question. Why jazz? Why did you lean, mm. choose, fall in love with jazz as opposed to all the other genres that are out there? Yeah. So I, I started off with a classical background. So I started playing classical cello um, mm -hmm. and I did that when I was about six and, and I was in choirs. So I was always in that kind of traditional kind of like classical little pocket. And I'd find, I, I guess it, the writing was on the wall, but I had this amazing teacher in Canberra um, who taught me cello for a while called Lindy Rexton. She still teaches at annual. We laugh about this all the time, but, but I used to play the Bach cello suites and I used to improvise as I was playing them. And obviously as a classical musician, you don't want to add in notes. You don't want to mess with what Bach was doing. <laughs> That's you, not on the sheets. Yeah, I, yeah. I think Bach had it pretty well sorted, but, um, <laughs> but Lindy would say, you can't, you can't improvise. Like, what are you doing? And then, uh, but then I, I, I realized that artistically, I really wanted to express myself through the, the mode of improvisation. And ultimately, that is what 
drew me to jazz. And ultimately, that what's, is what draws me to any sort of creativity is I love that sense of like in the moment, creative expression. Um, and that's what jazz celebrates. It's really a, a kind of a music of conversation. Mm. And I love having conversations in real life, but I also love having conversations on stage and musically speaking. So I think that's what really kind of sucked me into the jazz world and why I've never, even, even when I'm writing music that some might not necessarily deem as like strictly jazz, it still has an element element of improvisation within it because uh, I love that sense of conversation. So does that mean that a song that you've written uh, in its performance at its base is the same? So say you're performing a song on your album and then you're doing mm. that song live. Yeah. That song live in the interpretation bit of it mm. is never the same. It's never the same. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and maybe it's because I, I, I would find it boring to do it the same. Sure. And I remember even doing – kind of some of the, like the wedding gigs. And I'd have to consciously be like, <laughs> this is how Sign Seal Delivers goes. You know, <laughs> it's like, I've got to sing the same because everyone, and everyone's singing along. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, do my own version. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but when it comes to my own creative stuff, definitely, I I think it's always important to, to treat the framework and a melody with respect. Mm. Um, and this is something I'd always talk with my students about when, when you're, say, performing a jazz standard, for instance. You know, when you sing it the first time, the composer has written it with a particular intent. But next time when you, when you sing the melody again, that's your ability. It gives you, it opens a door to be able to, to really take your own interpretation to that kind of initial intent of the composer. And I think that is the space that I love exploring with my own music. So when I perform my own music, I would never perform something the same and I'd never want the band to kind of play the same part. Of right. course, there's going to be structures, you know, it might be a similar beat, but there's always room for expression. Um, and that's why I think a lot of musicians uh, that I've collaborated with in the past, we really enjoy playing music together because I'm not this kind of dictator who's, this who's saying, this is how it goes. Like, you have to play it like this. And I'm always drawn to, even if it's not necessarily uh, straight ahead jazz music, is I'm always drawn to musicians who have a jazz background. Mm. Like I was, I, I played um, my original music in a, in a session uh, with uh, 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 Taylor Swift's musical director. Um, and he was, he'd just come off tour. He was Taylor Swift's musical director for, I don't know, uh, maybe uh, 15 years, I think, and, and ended, uh, you know, just a few years ago. But he had been playing the same parts in all this stuff. He's incredible. <laughs> incredible uh, jazz musician, but then, uh, you know, his ability to express himself within a jazz context and a musical framework, you know, he just loved doing that. Mm -hmm. And of, and of course, anyone who comes from that background of, of jazz, they just love expressing themselves in that way because it feels almost like coming home. Mm. Um, and that's the sense that I feel when I, when I'm on stage with musicians who really are great conversationalists and I've been lucky to, to kind of really, uh, you know, collaborate with those people in, yeah. in my career. I think that's it's fantastic you're describing it this way because I think a lot of people struggle with jazz. It's not the easiest thing to understand, maybe for exactly the reason you just said, and that is we look uh, for patterns in music, you know, and as, if we can repeat that pattern, then becomes a rec recognized mm. tune, gets into our ear, and every time it comes on, we go, oh, I like this bit. It goes like this, which is what, you know, basic structures of music really are. Whilst in jazz, um, unless you're listening to the same song that's been recorded over and over again and you can almost, you know, uh, kind of see a pattern in the improvisation, you're not 
your, your brain is actually trying to connect up something that, that might be a little bit difficult to do. So now for me, that's super interesting and quite relaxing because I'm like, mm. well, I can't predict what you're about to do. So I'm just going to listen to the mood of it. And to me, that yeah. actually find that quite soothing. But I love the way that you describe what the excitement in this is. Mm. So maybe perhaps people will listen to jazz a little bit differently. I know that the um, the first kind of jazz musician uh, that kind of maybe almost understand jazz was Stan Gatz, uh, the saxophonist. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, only because he would always, especially a lot of his bossa nova stuff, he would kind of do this very basic, beautiful melody line at first mm. you go, i don't know exactly what song this is and then he starts to drift away from it but you can mm. still hear the original song in there yeah. and then i realized oh he's reinterpreting the tune but he's kind of taking me along now he's he, like i said he's not one of these people that goes completely nuts which is probably mm. quite easy for someone like me to understand <laughs> but i got it and i'm like yeah. oh yeah i get this yeah but um yeah i love the way that you described it i think it's an interesting way of positioning what what jazz really mm. is so that's awesome now um You've mentioned, obviously, other creative endeavors, specifically around photography, cinematography, video production. Mm. When did that kick off? Did, did that kick off somewhat when you were already in New York before, later? How did Yeah, so it kicked off in New York. Okay. And it kicked off really organically. I'd always had an interest in photography, but I never had, never had a camera. And then it started to be one of those things, obviously, I had a big uh, network of musicians. And then eventually some musicians were like, oh, I need some headshots. You know, and I've been taking a few photos and, and all that kind of stuff. So it started off going in and doing some behind the scenes stuff in, in uh, studios. They might have an album session. I'd come in and take some photos. And it really just happened very organically through that. So I would say it really ramped up in the final few years that I was in New okay. York. Um, and then by the end of it, I was, you know, shooting music videos and, and all that kind of thing. And then when I came back to Canberra, I then added it to kind of my, my arsenal of different creative endeavors that I was doing um, and wor working uh, with artists, but also doing some corporate stuff and, and different things like that. So it's, it's always, uh, yeah, I think New York was where it really became a, a lot of experimentation and and starting to explore it but it was always centered around the art and around different creative people that i knew and different uh different uh avenues for exploration but at that mm. point did you kind of think hang on i can make this be something bigger rather than just a hobby creative endeavor yeah something that professionally brings in income could you see it at that point? Yeah, well, I started to realize it could be that when I kept on getting asked to do it by other people. I think <laughs> yeah. I think pretty quickly I would have realized as soon as if I did it for one person and and then I never got a call again, I think that would maybe be a little bit of a sign. But people just kept on asking. They'd they'd see one thing and and say, "Oh, I saw you shot this thing," and and it happened very organically. And in a place like New York, because there's so many musicians and there's such and different creatives and there's such an appetite for constantly needing you know album covers or you know promo material all that kind of thing is that there's always a thirst for for that kind of work um and that's to a lesser extent in canberra i've, I've found because it isn't that you know it's a smaller place there's not a huge there's obviously not the the depth of of creative pursuits that are going on within canberra um but certainly in new york it, it became very apparent quite quickly that you know, this was the, the way things were being received. Uh, you know, this was something that was worth exploring and also just something that I loved. Mm. And as a as a musician, um, I feel like it, it 
it's it's something that really complements. So it, it was something where I was able to, you know, do self-portraits of an EP cover or something like that. And and it was it was allowing me to to really control some of my own artistic output as well. So it yeah, it was a it was something that uh yeah, I just jumped straight into. But I presume it's it's a different creative approach because just like the jazz you were talking about whereas mm. reinterpretation like mm. really make it very individual <laughs> mm. I mean, you see where i'm going with this but i'm presuming you're not treating uh, you did mention before that you don't have the baggage of the technicalities and all this other mm. stuff we talked about but you know you are kind of leaning into a sense of aesthetic that you believe works well yes. uh, or in product yeah. in, mm. in other words your creative exploration that you've got in jazz which is really at the, at the far end of what you yeah. can do musically in terms of exploration you're not doing this in this space. I presume it's by far more straightforward. Yeah, well, I think within a musical context, it's it's a question of training your ear. Mm. And when, within a creative, uh, w- within a visual context, it's more training your eye. So something that I think a lot about is, you know, consuming, even though I, do, I don't come from a, a technical background through university systems or anything like that, I'm always trying to educate myself through consuming media. I love um, you know, uh, going to galleries. I love really trying to take in as much information as possible. And then that allows me a basis to inform artistically. That informs composition, that informs, you know, the different aesthetics that I'm naturally drawn to. And it mm. also informs my abilities to replicate for a client. Like if someone comes up to me and goes, I've got this portrait, I, you know, someone might come up and go, you know, I, I, I want to do more of an editorial style shoot. I want to have more of a studio lighting setup. And, and I can, I'm able to replicate that because I've diagnosed how other photographers have done. I go, oh, that's a two light setup. They've got a rim line. They've got a key light. And it allows me to kind of tap into what I've really just taught myself, but through very specific kind of aesthetic boundaries and, and this kind of framework. So it, it, yeah. it does allow me a sense of, of exploration, but, but it gives me the framework to which I can kind of yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, execute. So it w- would it be the equivalent or the parallel to the corporate gigs in music that you were doing? Oh, do you see what you're getting at here? Yeah. Like, do, do you think, because with the corporate gigs, you were saying, you know, you're playing a Timberland song and there's a structure mm. and you've got a band with you. You're not really supposed to get too jazzy there, presumably, or maybe a corporate wedding gig or whatever. Yeah. Right. Is it the same kind of thing where there are boundaries around which you're working within to make sure mm. the product is traditional or standardized? I'm not quite sure what the word to yeah. use here. Is that kind of where it sits for you at that level? Yeah, well, it's always a question, and this covers all the creative industries. It's it's a it's a delicate balance between kind of uh, creative expression, mm-hmm. and then also if it's client work, then that's a very different thing. Mm. So if it's if it's client based, like if I'm doing a corporate gig, it's for a client, and I'm just trying to execute. Um, for the best result for them. Yeah. Same with if uh, a musician comes up to me and goes, I've got this music video, or a dancer comes up and goes, I want you to to, to film this behind the scenes thing of, of a work in progress. My pure focus is to make the best outcome for them. And I put all my artistic stuff aside. Okay. Because for me, it's all about appropriate time and place for where I can express myself creatively. And that's why I do express myself through my own creative projects. Okay, that's it. Because okay. it's, it's really important, in my opinion, to have all the skills to be able to do both. 
and both feed into each other. Like I, I learn a lot from doing client work and I learn a lot from doing creative work and they all kind of, there's a symbiotic relationship that really allows me to, to kind of elevate both. Mm. And I think my client work improves and also my own creative work improves. So for instance, uh, with this big project I did last year, um, it was the first time I'd, I'd fused my musical creative output and my video creative output filming this documentary. I filmed documentary on fatherhood, which featured 10 different fathers. Mm -hmm. And then I scored that documentary um, with an original score and with 10 different songs that responded to each of these, these kind of segments of the documentary. And I performed that live with the documentary on screen in Canberra at the street theater. Um, and that was the first time I'd, I'd kind of married both my video um, side of my creative output to my musical side. And this was kind of like this, it was kind of this overflowing creative expression that really <laughs> it was two years of work and it was, it was a huge process and, and I'm really proud of it, but it was the first time kind of combining both of those streams. And it was an, a way for me to, to really allow myself full creative freedom. But I love also working within a client's creative framework because they're like executing and doing something, uh, you know, that, that sense of, of having parameters for your creative expression is actually can be really freeing and, and gives you a chance of still being creative, but doing it within the framework of someone else's uh, is a really beautiful space to mm. be in as well. So if, if I kind of thought, you know, what's the, the dream job around, perhaps, you know, your visual stuff, meaning your photography and your video. Mm. Do you have a kind of dream of, exactly, documentaries at the top of the list? Would you like to do a film? Is it kind of abstract creative work? Do, do you have like a bit of a mm. a goal in that, in that place? Or, or is that how it works for you? Yeah, well, because I don't come from that background, I don't, I don't even conceptualize a, a traditional framework of like, mm. like career advancement. <laughs> like I'm not, my dream for my, for my visual side of my creative expression isn't to like end up in the National Gallery. Um, that I don't really think about it in terms of that. I think about it more in terms of, of being able to express the, the projects that I'm, that I'm interested in. So it was fatherhood last year. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to be able to express that topic. And it's something that was personal to me being sure. a father. Um, and I really wanted to express that in the best way that I could using those, uh, those means that I had at my disposal. So for me, that is the ultimate for my visual, uh, you know, those types of projects. If I could, in an ideal world, if, if, uh, someone was, giving me philanthropy to, yep. to fund whatever project, you know, it, it would be an escalation of that process. Okay. So it would be, you know, I did this, the, the project, that project was at the street theater, you know, in a, in a dream scenario, maybe the next project's at Sydney Opera House and the next project's at the Lincoln Center in New York. You know, that, that would be, I guess, a traditional escalation of, of achievement. Hmm. Um, but as I get older, I've, and also maybe fatherhood and parenthood really kind of makes you reconfigure where your compass is pointed. I start to to kind of, you know, re-examine the bar barometers for, for success, mm. I think. So even in answering a question like that, uh, for me, I just want to make the best art possible and just to keep on refining. Like I'm, I am a perfectionist, which is probably a hindrance uh, a lot of the time but anytime I do a you know whilst I can be really comfortable and, and happy with a, a photo series that I do for instance you know I'm always thinking the next one's going to be better 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. It's going to be more insightful. It's going to, it's going to capture something different. It's going to challenge me technically. Mm. Um, so really it's, it, it comes back to the art being the best and hopefully the wider reception, you know, because I've had to readjust my, my, and recalibrate the success of even my, my music, musical career, because now for me, it's not like I don't want to sell a million CDs, mm. you know, because that's not even a thing, you know, like, do I want to get a, a, like a gazillion streams? Do I want to have a, a career where I can go and perform in each city in Australia or overseas and sell it out to like a room of 200 people, a thousand people? Like, like those are things that I'm thinking about more than traditional, you know, you know, uh, standards of success. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's about that recalibration of what you want success to be. Mm. And, and it goes back, I mean, you were talking about that big decision that you made when you were younger uh, around the music touring and everything else. You know, you already were changing what ultimately success might be in the future, you know? Yes. So I can see yeah. why you make those kind of choices right now too. Yeah. And it's all the juggle. And I, I think the juggle never ends. But that's a good thing, right? Because then yeah. you don't have like... This single goal, it's, it's actually, I, I might have spoken about this on this podcast, but you know, there's this kind of classic question that people used to ask you, or maybe still do in interviews, and where would you like to see yourself in five years' time? Yes. Yeah. I always found that question super difficult. I've never planned on this singular goal. I, I've, and I've always thought that if I did, it would actually limit me from being able to see opportunities. Because oh, if totally. you're just so set on mm. this one thing, mm. how do you know that is the right thing? I would prefer having a slightly open field and maybe have a couple of things in front of me that I may mean towards so that I've got direction, but that I don't mind moving from side to side depending on what opportunities come. And actually, that's always worked really well for me. Mm. Um, and in a way, having a singular goal and everything else can actually be quite limiting, especially if you don't get to it. Well, there is there also is the converse of that, which is kind of like if you have too much choice, there's a paralysis that can <laughs> come with that. Yeah. And I've had moments, certainly when I moved back to Australia, I was... I was faced with this, okay, so I'm now not in New York. I'm now not surrounded by, you know, as many creatives as I was. Like, what is the next thing I'm going to do? You know, like there's so many, there isn't traditional kind of avenues for success. In Australia, it's a very different ecosystem for, for, creative, uh, for creatives in general. Um, so I had to really redefine, and I did feel a little bit of that paralysis of, of you know, what it's what's next. happening next. But also... And I'm I'm starting to slow down my my worry of of how fast I'm moving, and it is tricky because I have friends now who are moving at very different speeds, and they're you know winning Grammys, winning Oscars, doing the whole thing, and that's amazing, and I'm, I'm super excited for them, and and I I think it's incredible, um, but. I've also, I'm trying to be more gentle to myself mm. about the speed at which I'm moving and the artistic output that I can comfortably achieve with my own life choices you know i'm a father you know that that is something i also care deeply about and i want to make sure that i'm around you know so i I wouldn't even potentially take it to if someone was like you can do a world tour supporting you know whoever but you're gone for but you're gone for a year Mm. i probably wouldn't take it yeah you know and that would be a a detriment to my career but but I, i i think you know it's i'm starting to view things more holistically Mm. and i'm starting to view things that the best art for myself that I can create actually comes from a place of of relative comfort and that whole kind of like notion of you've got to be a tortured artist, you've got to have no money, <laughs> you've got to do the whole thing. You know, I've done that 
in New York. And, and in the end, New York was very comfortable, but I was very busy doing a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily just creative. Mm. So it, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance and it's something that I'm being more gentle with myself. And I think with my project last year, with the fatherhood project, it was so consuming and it was, it was all consuming for two years with all the filming and, and because I was doing everything myself, I filmed, I edited, I, I did all the color grading. I, you know, I, I wrote all the music, I arranged all the music, I did all the band directing, like all of that stuff was, was so consuming, but it, it gave me such joy. Um, you know, those are the types of, of projects that I'm really interested in, in kind of, uh, in kind of taking on and yeah. I think we'll have the most you know re- return on investment for my own uh, well-being and artistic satisfaction mm. I mean across all the things that you're talking about too there's this well you're talking about success right and we started mm. off with music then we talk about the other creative adventures and what have you but it seems like most certainly that a definition of success for you is you know I mean personal comfort, but what I mean by that is not really at home on a couch, but rather mm. on a psychological level. Yeah. The fact that you've got time f- to be a father and what that really means to be a good dad and all the rest of it. Mm. You know, you, you even talked about the fact that you, you really love communicating with people, which is why you love jazz, because it is a communication between a musician and the audience as well. Yes, in a way yeah. that's by far more organic and interesting, I guess, maybe than just replaying something that's been done over and over again. So mm. I, I can sense that in you there is this desire and drive to essentially have a complex connection with with people Mm. and and so jazz is clearly that for you i guess your expression in the creative spaces of photography and and Mm. video you're not from my understanding shooting pretty flowers at this point and abstract uh videos just for the fun of it you've got you're leaning into content like documentaries especially for things that are very important to you and and Mm. society as a whole so i can definitely see that aspect of it which i guess is a nice segue too because you're also picking up or have picked up um a large part of your life and dedicated that to other things that are important to you as well yes in in some way I, i kind of wanted also to ask this that is is that coming again a little bit like your music and your creativity where it got born out of moments in time and where you were in life organically somewhat which you then turned into something that is a Mm. profession or a direction and Mm. something you put a lot of effort into Mm. is the same thing happened here with that too or or is it a conscious decision to be the voice of a particular because there is a big difference between you on a stage Mm. there is still a space between you and audience yes yeah you behind the camera even if you're doing a documentary there is Mm. still a a protective layer right yeah but as soon as you become the voice that is talking to people directly Mm. that ceases to exist right yeah getting closer than than anything else you kind of almost don't have the protection as an artist you don't have the protection as a producer you are now lee and budge talking to people directly about your personal experiences which is kind of vulnerable and 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 brave at the same time and exciting but i wonder i wonder how you kind of got that got there because i think a lot of artistic people such as yourself tend to never cross over that barrier which is why i know there's Mm. uh they have um, artistic names and and uh the personal life tends to be quite covered, you know? Mm. Um, and I think in some way you're almost 
crossing that over. And I, I guess I just wanted to explore that. That is a great way of bringing it up. It's very cryptic. So I'll, I'll, fully, I'll fully articulate uh, where you're going with that as well, <laughs> um, just for listeners who might not be initiated into, in, into some of the other stuff that I'm doing. But yeah, mm. so my wife and I, um, you know, we've had an open relationship for 10 years. Yep. Um, and when we came back to Australia, we were looking, we had these amazing communities that had, uh, you know, with lots of people in open relationships in New York and lots of our friends in similar situations. Um, and when we came back to Australia, we didn't really have that sense of community. Um, so we essentially just made that community um, for us. Uh, so we started uh, the Evolving Love Project and initially started with Abby, my wife's uh, kind of writing about the topic of open relationships. And then it eventually became uh, conversation evenings where we'd uh, every month we'd have, uh, you know, 20, 25 people kind of join the space and we'd just talk about what it's like to be in open relationships and we'd all kind of share stories. And it was really a sense of trying to build community within something that has been often very stigmatized within society um, and and really creating a safe space for people to, to discuss it, essentially. Yeah. And then through that, we also uh, have de- uh, decided to, to start a podcast where we host these conversations and we discuss with kind of world-leading experts um, uh, in the field of non-monogamy. And also outside of that, we had a, a biblical scholar on just recently <laughs> um, talking about non-monogamy. But we, you know, just opening up these conversations and trying to just destigmatize different relationship types. We're not uh, going around preaching and telling everyone that they should be non-monogamous because, um, of course, you know, people have to choose the relationship that, that uh, fits for them. Um, but it is, it does come back to a sense of being vulnerable. And I, I've always found myself to be a very vulnerable musician. I like getting into that space. Right. So for me, it wasn't too much of a stretch. Okay. Um, and because we'd been in our own, maybe we'd been desensitized by the New York scene um, and just the different people that we knew, but no one batted an eyelid in New York. Everyone was like, oh, you're not monogamous. Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, that, that, that doesn't, you know, didn't even bat an eyelid. But when moving back to Australia, it's a little bit more conservative. But what we found is in Canberra, there was a real interest in, excuse me, in, in people who wanted to uh, to just have these discussions, to, ha- to talk about um, alternative relationships, different relationship structures that might, you know, work for them okay. um, and just move against some of the, the, the kind of, uh, you know, quote, unquote, uh, kind of normal relationship structures. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we've been doing is, is hosting these conversations. Abby's yeah. hosted these incredible women's retreats. Um, but yeah, also, uh, doing, doing podcasts as well. Yeah. So, so, but it always comes back to that sense of, and, and I've never really drawn the link between my, my love for communication in terms of a musical context, but also my love for having conversations. Uh, but yeah, I think that is a real through line. Like, mm. you know, I'm, I'm very interested in stories. I've always been interested in writing music that features stories. I've been interested in, uh, you know, video that tells stories yep. and kind of communicating a message and having, uh, I think now more than ever in this kind of, the world environment that we find ourselves in is sometimes conversations can be difficult across the aisle. You know, it's, it's so important that we're all having civil, uh, disagreeable conversations sometimes. Mm. And I think that there is a real nuance and a real, the art of conversation has been lost a lot uh, in recent times for a lot of different reasons, but that is something that I I'm, I'm, I deeply care about, yeah. and I think that this 
by having these difficult conversations, uh, you know, it can really open up some of those some of those things. And I think you know, maybe in some way, you're being slightly humble because apart from the content that the both of you create, mm. you know, because of media attention and mm. other things that have that have obviously been in the mainstream media and so forth, you have become somewhat a voice. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, a voice that essentially provides uh, definition, understanding, mm-hmm. empathy, you yes. know, yeah. and obviously battles all the negativity that comes with it and, and, and takes up the positivity from people who finally can feel heard or at least yes. yeah. understood or whatever else. Um, but what, I'm, what I was getting at is I can most certainly see across the three things that we've discussed, mm-hmm. there is a similarity in approach. Mm-hmm. The only thing being different that, uh, like I said, it's I mean, it's not easy to hide behind your music or your, your art, but it is on the other side. Like it's on stage, it's mm-hmm. behind the stream, it is behind the camera. Whilst here, you are that person. You, you literally said, "Well, I'm I'm directly talking to you now." You know, you've really mm-hmm. opened yourself up. And I wondered whether that was a difficult thing to do or not, um, or, or whether it just came organically because you said, "Look, <clears throat> we had this wonderful community in New York." We believe that this this should go further in Australia too, and and there it was, and you didn't really think about it twice, or was there a moment where you kind of went, this this is a little bit different, you know, mm. because we're opening ourselves up by far more than we would have ever in our creative endeavors. I should probably say too, and tell me if I'm wrong, but Abby paints, does she not? Yes, yeah, she's, yeah, an, yeah. she's an incredible artist. Again, yeah. so that's sorry, so I probably should have mentioned that. So I could I could see this heavily artistic stream mm. both of you, and and. It's different being an artist or a performer than being a real person. And and I guess mm. you're now leaning into, you're not a performer yeah. on television talking about this. Yeah. You, you are you. Yeah. It, it comes from a gradual exposure, I think. We didn't necessarily decide to to suddenly become completely on a national scale public about our relationship and our relationship yeah. choices. Um, initially when Abby started writing, she was doing it, um, under a pen name, you know, she wasn't even under her own name necessarily. And then, uh, you know, we, we slowly became more public and we came out to our family and, and that was received well. And, and eventually we just said, you know, this is this, we shouldn't necessarily need to feel ashamed of this. Um, we feel comfortable coming out. We're proud of our choices. We, we can, uh, we feel proud of our relationship and, Something I think about a lot is both Abby and I are creatives and in a lot of ways having a non-monogamous relationship is is really a form of creative expression because mm-hmm. we're always creating our relationship. Yeah. There is always that sense of real exploration, creativity. We're constantly checking in with each other. It's We haven't kind of gone for a default cookie cutter kind of relationship style. So we're able to, to kind of really exercise that sense of, of, of creative expression. So it's, 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 it is something that uh, we have thought a lot about, certainly before opening up and now on the scale, you know, we, we have been on TV and, and, and all of these things starting to, it's kind of really um, uh, growing in the level of exposure. Um, and we do feel comfortable with it, but it's, it's been a gradual thing. So I don't mm. think it would have been comfortable if, if one night we decided to do it, release the podcast, gone <laughs> out, you know, and, and even it was something that I was very conscious of, uh, you know, with, with my teaching, it was very separate. I was very aware of, of, you know, it was never something that was discussed with students, for instance. Um, you know, and, and it was, so I, I'm very sensitive to it. 
uh, even just because there's so much stigma um, mm. around these things. Um, but yeah, but you know, what we're hoping is that by just talking about these things, and like you were saying, and you beautifully said, you know, part of the advantage of this is it really allows people who haven't felt seen to feel seen, and we're in a privileged situation yep. where we're not at great risk of we're not losing our family. You know, they're all supportive of us. Um, and, uh, you know, we're in a position where we can talk about these things publicly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I was being cryptic at the beginning because I didn't want to predefine the way you were going to talk about it. Yes. Yeah. Because if I did, then you would be answering my question on a particular way. And I just wanted to see where you would go with it. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, this, this podcast is about, you know, it's about careers and, and professions in a way. And mm. I'm not suggesting that this chapter of your life and, and and doing this part of it is a career progression as such, but because I think you as a creative mm. is so much part of your personality mm. that defines your career. Yeah. And we're talking about branches and, you know, there's a similarity in all this kind of creative stuff that I thought would be the same here. And yeah. actually I had this one question. You were talking about um, always wanting to be better. And I guess that probably means that if you now listen back to your albums of a couple of years ago, mm. There's probably a healthy level of criticism over the things. You're probably like, oh, could have done that better. Yes, or, yeah. you know, and then it's probably stuff that you also really, really like. That's one thing. I am sure that as a creative, you're very you're very conscious of the criticism that comes from an audience because you're putting yourself in front of mm -hmm. them, right? Perhaps yeah. behind, I said, the protection of a, a name or an album or whatever. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. you're probably used to some people saying, I love that or mm, not so much, right? Yeah. Um is it similar or different to the criticism that you get for this stuff? And, and mm. because does it does it hurt more? Is it about the same, or, mm. or or has it been that years of being a creative and having positive negative feedback has given you the kind of skin that enables you to to, to manage this? Look, well, I've I've been a creative long enough to get you know my share of bad reviews. <laughs> you know, so it's 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 something that I have. Uh, you know, confronted in the past. And I would say my natural disposition is one of, of being a sensitive person. Mm -hmm. So whether it's in my creativity um, and reactions to that, or whether it's in us talking publicly about non-monogamy and, and the broader public's um, relationship to that. So I, I think I'm naturally sensitive in all environments. And of course, it's one thing to logically think, oh, well, you know, if you get criticized for something, uh, you know, it's easy to logically go, oh, well, that doesn't make sense for this and this reasons. I feel comfortable in my convictions with my music or with my relationship, mm. all that kind of thing. Um, but one thing that I feel that I can completely defend is the love that I have for Abby and our relationship choices and our relationship structure and our style and what we choose to do. So ultimately it comes, even if the criticism can really pierce and, you know, uh, and, and, I know that the criticism isn't coming from people who've who've really even listened to the podcast or read any of Abby's amazing writing um, or have met us. You know, it's just kind of easy to throw stones in an online environment, I Very, think. Yeah. Uh, so I, I ultimately have to remind myself of this fact. But, of course, it is hard to deal with, with criticisms on that personal of a level, mm. uh, certainly. So it's it's something that... Uh, with time, um, you know, these things will come. And I've I've talked to friends with higher profiles than than myself, you know, how they deal with it. And and it's something that is a I'm aware of in a conversation. Um, and yeah, I think it's just a 
an evolving process of of trying to to really uh, come to terms with how different people view things and also acknowledging that people don't have to agree. And I'm not looking for everyone to agree with the choices that we make. Yeah. Um, but what we keep on coming back to within the conversations that we have within the podcast um, or within Abby's writing is that it's so important to be able to have discussions where we, we don't hold similar beliefs, but they're still civil discussions. So would it be the same? And sorry, but I'm just seeing all this. You know how I said in jazz, the beauty of it is in the musical conversation, mm. not ultimately the same end product every time. Mm. Is the position with non-monogamy is same here, that it's not about winning an ultimate position of acceptance by everybody of the definition of what it is and that it's fine, but mm. rather an ongoing conversation about it? Mm. Absolutely. You, you don't have an end goal. Like it's not, it's, so for example, Phil, there was a lobby party, right? And it's to mm. lobby for a particular cause. And yes. the end goal is to get that cause supported, funded, whatever. Then mm. we shut up shop and then we move somewhere else. Mm. Whilst here, it's about educating, conversing, evolving. Mm. There isn't an end point of, well, once we get to 25% of people understanding what this is and accepting it and there is some kind of law in parliament, then yeah. we're done and we're shutting up shop. Yeah. This is an ongoing conversation. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and something that we talk a lot about is this idea of the relationship escalator in monogamy. So essentially what that is 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 you kind of you you meet someone, you go on your dates, then the next thing is you you propose to the person, and the next thing is uh, you get married, and then you have kids, and then you have two point four kids, or whatever the <laughs> whatever the the statistic is now. And there is this sense of this is what you do, this is what everyone else has done, and this is what I have to do to be happy. And so, what we're really uh, trying to interrogate within ourselves and also within our conversations is maybe you don't want to have kids, and that's mm. totally fine. Maybe you don't want to get married, and that's totally fine. You know, we, we know plenty of couples who've been together for 30 years and never been married, and they have beautiful relationships. Mm. But just because they haven't got married doesn't mean their relationship is any less strong. You know, so it's, it's, it's really interrogating some of these uh, notions of, of what makes a good relationship. And so having that sense of, of constantly, uh, you know, looking at your own relationship and, and uh, you know, reinvigorating that in whatever way you, you, you might need to reinvigorate it or, or redirectioning it, like there, there is such a beauty in that and such a sense of creation. Yeah. And ultimately in a great relationship is, is that sense of creation is also fueled by communication. And that's what even in great monogamous relationships, and there are so, like, I know so many people in beautiful monogamous relationships, but at the heart of those relationships is still communication. And yeah. there's plenty of people in very bad non-monogamous relationships, and at the heart of that is bad communication. Mm. So, it, it really comes down to our ability to converse with each other, whether that's a partner or multiple partners or however many partners you mm. might have. Uh, and that's where the, the, the real art lies. This is the important thing. People love taking a side. And I, when I say mm. people, I really mean being like general. People like taking a side. They like things to be black and white. It's just easier, right? Our lives are complex. And when you kind of put something in a bucket of a yes or a no, rather than a maybe mm. and whatever else, it's just easier. Our lives get easier. We can focus on other things or the day-to-day yes. -day problems that we've got. And I think for that reason, when you start bringing those things out of the black or the white into the gray, some people kind of get upset at that too. 
maybe being comfortable with the gray is is where all of this sits. Like the fact that that sometimes there isn't a clear answer or the answer is, well, it all depends. And, you know, people don't really mm. like that either. Uh, and I think a lot of it maybe is to do with people being comfortable and feeling safe in the discourse about things that yes. don't have a direct definitive answer attached to it. Yeah. And, and, and being quite okay in that, in that space. Yeah. And sometimes there is comfort in, you know, some people don't have the bandwidth to devote emotional energy to having multiple relationships or sure. some people go, I just want to have a monogamous relationship, focus on my career. And that's those two things are all I care about that and a family or whatever it might be, whatever kind of fits into the jigsaw puzzle mm. of one's life. And that is the bandwidth that they have. Whereas some people might want to put the bandwidth that, you know, you devote to playing tennis on the weekend or going out and playing golf to then maybe, you know, doing something else or going out with another partner or, or having that, that space for that sense of exploration. And in a lot of ways, you know, one of the misconceptions about anyone in an open relationship and certainly the Abby and I have faced is that we're kind of, it's this free for all, sure. you know, uh, debaucherous, constant hedonistic, you know, party. And really, it's it's more of a mindset. It's a sense of aliveness that we feel we have this ability to explore within our relationship, even if we're not actually necessarily exploring that all the time or it only happens once a year or wh whatever it might be. Um, it, there is that sense that our relationship is is always alive and the flame is always flickering and it's always... You know, we've we've had times when we've been gone into more of a monogamous thing, you know, certainly around the time when Abby was pregnant and and then kind of venturing back out into non-monogamy. But we've always felt, even in those times where we've consciously not had other partners, we've had this sense of like a non-monogamous spirit sure. within our relationship. And and that's what really gives me a sense of of aliveness. And I, I find that when I meet when often when I meet non-monogamous people, I can instantly i can instantly pick it because they have this sense of of a real uh kind of this extra spark and this extra sense of fascination or yeah aliveness is probably the best word that i just used to describe it yeah, interesting. um and and you know I, I would my success rate with with picking these situations is, is pretty high at this point and 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 might not necessarily people who would want to be in a non-monogamous relationship but they're open to uh, you know, exploring some form of that, with, even if they don't act it out within their relationship with their partner. Mm. That, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, I think maybe I was going to ask you whether people in that position to have a particular element of confidence about them, because you could argue that if you're so confident about the love you have for someone, that flame mm. that you were describing, mm. then it's less of a concern around all those other things that traditionally people talk about. What about jealousy or what about all this yes. other stuff, right? Which could be a very hard thing to handle. But I guess if there's confidence within that and it's unfaltering, that I guess you'd be by far more free in that respect. So I could, so, so yeah. maybe what you're also picking up on is, is maybe that confidence. And it's is like, Abby good at picking that too, by the way? Uh, yes. Yeah. I okay. Mean, okay, okay. I, th I think I may be ahead in the, uh, <laughs> in the States, but, but yeah, it's, it is that there's so many, and this is why we love talking about it. It's mm. an endlessly fascinating topic. And sometimes it does come with extra confidence to be in a non-monogamous relationship. Sometimes if people open up their relationship and they don't have that secure foundation, it really shines a light on the issues that were within the relationship. Mm. And what can often happen is someone with 
who's who's lacking within their relationship can go let's have an open relationship and then they break up because of because of you know uh exploring that open relationship and then everyone goes oh see the open relationship is actually what exploded their relationship where in reality the foundations were not necessarily there and the the greatest relationships in a non-monogamous sense that that we have seen and we know people who've been married for decades and been non-monogamous is that they have a really strong foundation you know they have this beautiful communication um that they can then explore these kind of extra you know facets of their their sexuality or their you know their different relationships um but sometimes people who are non-monogamous are are the most insecure people as well you know it it can be a sense of some people look for validation and comes down to attachment theories and you know this is something we interrogate with psychologists on the podcast and and, and all that kind of stuff but but yeah it is it is an endlessly fascinating topic Hmm. um well as the last question because i'm sure we've run out of the time we've talked about like three very interesting branches you mm. know in you as a person but most certainly mm. i could say career or life actually mm. let's talk about that is, is there another branch forming out of anything else that we haven't discussed can you see anything else going well, you know there's this other thing forming at this stage of my life that i think might end up being yet a fourth thing to add to my creative life yeah i think the a sense of of structure is what i'm gravitating towards at the moment and i think maybe it comes down to this kind of instinctual thing as a father like i feel a sense of of providing you know in a i've lived a life that's up to this point of very freelance project to project and i have these streams that have always existed within myself that have all been creative so all the things that we've talked about so far but i do have a i feel a calling to something a bit more structured um and maybe that's a, a sense uh of of being in canberra now for a few years and kind of a shift um away from some of the 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 more risky elements of a freelance career. So I I think at the heart of everything that I do and for my own sanity and for my own love of creativity, whatever I do will always have that core of creativity mm. and that core of telling stories, um, that core of, of valuing conversation. Um, so what... Whatever might come next, I think we'll, we'll have that at the center of it um, because that's what I'm most passionate about. Sure. I, I can't see myself deciding to become a, uh, an accountant anytime <laughs> soon. I, mean, I was going to make the same joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I know lots of lovely accountants. So that's, that's, Talk about that's, structure. That's, yeah, the, but, it, but that kind of structural, I think at the, the essence of anything that I do will have that sense of creative expression mm. uh, because that's what I love. That's how I love to communicate. Um, and I, I just love conversations. So I, I'm, I'm open to where the journey may lead. I think as we discussed, you know, you never know which doors are opening and, and which door you might lead through. So yeah, I, I would, I would hope that I'm open-minded to a fourth chapter. Yeah. Hey, there could be many more, the fifth and sixth and seventh. And yes. Who knows? Exactly. And then we'll just keep on going. A whole book, a trilogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a very big tree of experience. Uh, that's awesome. Look, thank you. I, I really appreciate the chat. That was that was fun. I mean, I know that there's a whole section there on music and, and jazz, which is probably for me rather than the listeners. Who knows? Um, just because I've always been really interested in that. But I, I love the fact that we actually managed to kind of tie everything together and find mm. a thread to it that I didn't know was going to be presenting itself at the start of this conversation so we weaved it wonderfully (laughs) and it's great it's great to chat (laughs) likewise all right thank you
Well, that was my organic conversation with Liam Budge on Behind the Bio. And by organic, I mean that we didn't actually set out to have a very clear conversation about some specific points. Though I've got to say, I was very interested in his music side of things. But where we got to in the end, and the idea that all of his ventures, professional and otherwise, truly come from a deep respect for other people and our desire to want to communicate and connect with them was something that we arrived at through the magic of that conversation. If you'd like to check out Liam's music, then most certainly look for it across the different streaming platforms. And if you'd like to connect with Liam, then just check out the show notes. The contact will be there. And of course, if you want to get in touch with me, then as always, it's just Ashley underscore for at outlook.com. Or if you prefer Instagram, that at behind the bio podcast is how you'll be able to reach me. Once again, I'd like to thank Super Curious. Big shout out to them for supporting this from the very beginning. And I hope I can catch you at the next episode of Behind the Bio.